Shabbat shalom, everyone. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer and get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for bringing us through another week, for giving us another Shabbat to rest and to focus on you. We ask that you would be with us this morning. Father, open our hearts to hear your word and to hear your heart, and that we would be obedient to you in all things. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, this morning we're going to look at a verse that I think all of us know, probably know by heart. So if you would like to, why don't we all read it together? Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This is a verse that I know we all hear frequently, especially around election time. You hear sermon after sermon on this verse. And nations go before God and they beseech him on behalf of their nation because they want their nation to be blessed with the new people that are coming into office. And guess what? We also hear this verse at other times, such as when our nation faces a crisis. Remember back to 9-11, we heard this verse very frequently. And then there are some ministries that just use this verse. I know I went to a church a number of years ago that this was kind of the motto of the church. In fact, every Sunday morning you would walk in, they would hand you the paper bulletin, and right on the front of the bulletin was a picture of the stained glass window that was on the front of our building, and underneath it was this verse. So it was a constant reminder of what we need to be doing for our nation. But it's been my experience that most people look at this verse and they focus in and say, oh, let me go to God. Say, oh, God, forgive our nations of our sins, and you're going to bless me. You're going to bless our nation. But there's a lot more to this verse than just that. And what I want to do this morning is actually take this verse. We're going to spend this whole hour looking at this one verse, believe it or not. So there's a lot in here. We're going to break it down into its various pieces. We're going to see what it means and get a better understanding of it. And what I want to do is start out by the very first few words of this verse. If my people, and we're going to talk about that. In fact, this is going to be really our good solid intro into this lesson. We'll spend a lot of time on these three words. This begs the question, who are God's people? And there is actually a debate about this, about whether pe my people refers only to the nation of Israel, the people there at the temple or tabernacle as we'll talk about in a few moments or excuse me it was the temple um, or if this is for anybody who's reading this scripture if we can apply it there's actually that debate out there these words were actually spoken to God by God to Solomon when Solomon dedicated the temple the first temple so does that mean that that promise is only for those people at that time or can it be applied to other people at different times in different nations? And it's a tough question, and Bible scholars are divided on it. Here's what I want to propose to you, and I want you to hear me out all the way through because I'm going to back up my position on this with some scripture, and then you can make your decision. But I believe we need to look at scripture at the macro level, not the micro level. And what I mean by that is not just zero in on a verse and just focus in that one little verse and that one little context, because throughout scripture we see over and over where God repeats and he gives us examples of things that can be applied in other areas. 
So that's what we're going to do is we're going to look at Scripture in its whole and see what it tells us. And what we're going to do is start with this Scripture in Chronicles. After Adonai had led the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel out of Egypt, along with some other people, remember it was a mixed multitude, which means there were Gentiles also in that group, God gave them certain commandments, one of which was to build a tabernacle where they could make prescribed offerings and where his presence would reside. The tabernacle was portable, and it could be packed up and it could be moved as the people journeyed on their way to the promised land. Skip forward some generations, we see King David installed on the throne in Jerusalem. He moves into his beautiful, lavish palace. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 1, he summons the prophet Nathan. And he tells Nathan, here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. David was troubled by the discrepancy. Why should the king's house be a palace while the house of God was just a tent? Nathan's initial response to David was to go ahead and build a temple for God. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and he changed those plans. God declared to Nathan in chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles, verses 4 through 6, Go and tell David my servant, thus says Adonai, you are not to build me a house in which to dwell, for I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel out to this day. I have gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling to another. Wherever I went throughout all Israel, did I ever speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, in the long history of the tabernacle, God had never once rebuked Israel's leaders for not building a permanent house for him and his Ark of the Covenant. Adonai tells Nathan later in this chapter that instead of allowing David to build a temple for him, he has decided to allow David's son to oversee the work. Why Solomon and not David? After all, didn't Adonai declare that David was a man after his own heart? Well, if you continue reading in 1 Chronicles, when you get to chapter 22, you find the answer. And it tells us there, it says, You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Clearly, Adonai wanted a man of peace to construct the temple, not a man of war. After all, Isaiah 56, verse 7, tells us that God's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. So it should be a place of peace and not a place that's stained by bloodshed. And although David would not be allowed to build the temple, he was allowed to purchase the land where the temple would stand. We see that in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Then he made preparations. He prepared blocks of stone. He gathered iron, bronze, cedar logs, and other materials that would be needed. He also instructed Solomon on how the temple should be built. So he had a very important role to play, even though he did not actually get to execute those plans. 
In the second chapter of the book of Second Chronicles, Solomon decides it is time to build the temple. And we see in chapters 2, 3, and 4 the process that was required to build this structure, this magnificent structure. Then we get to chapter 5. We see there that Solomon brings in all of the gold, the silver, and the utensils that had been provided by his father, King David. And he sends for the Ark of the Covenant, which he then has placed into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the Holy of Holies. Solomon dedicated the temple in chapter 6, and in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, we see God's response to that dedication. Now when Solomon finished praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of Adonai filled the house. The Kohanim could not even enter into the house of Adonai because the glory of Adonai filled the house of Adonai. When all B'nai Yisrael saw the fire come down and the glory of Adonai above the house, they bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, prostrating themselves and praising Adonai, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Then we go down further in chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, and read this. Then Adonai appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, when my people over whom my name is called, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. Many of the Bible teachers who believe that this verse, 2 Chronicles 7.14, should not be applied to any other nation other than Israel, do so based on the fact that Solomon prayed after the completion of the temple and asked God to honor the prayers of the people, quote-unquote, toward this place. In fact, Solomon referred to this place or this temple a total of 13 times in, in these chapters relating to the dedication. Then in answer to Solomon, God used this place or this temple six times. So if you look solely at this passage, it would appear to be clear that scripture, this particular scripture applies only to Israel and the temple. But as I mentioned earlier, we need to look at scripture holistically rather than using tunnel vision. Let me give you a couple of verses. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 tells us, all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for restoration, and for training in righteousness, so that the person belonging to God may be capable, fully equipped for every good deed. In other words, God's word, all of it, is there to teach us how to conduct ourselves. That means this story 
about the dedication of the temple is more than just a history lesson and does indeed have some meaningful application for us today. And we're also told in God's word that everything is to be established by two or more witnesses. So I want to give you one additional scripture to support what I just said. When the Apostle Paul would cite in his letters Old Testament examples of rebellion in Israel's history that prompted God's punishment, he would also note that those punishments served as warnings for believers in Messiah. And one example, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and it was written down as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So, you look at these two scriptures, and there's many, many others we could look at as well, that tell us that all the scripture is applicable to us. We need to obey the spirit of the text of 2 Corinthians 7.14, endeavoring ourselves to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek God's face, and turn from our wicked ways. And in doing so, we can trust that he will indeed hear, forgive, and heal our nation. So, the next phrase we come to after, if my people, is call by my name. This clarifies exactly who can claim this verse. The people that are his. The Jewish people are known as the people of God. But I want to remind you of something. Gentiles were always intended to be part of God's family. His people. And we see it throughout scriptures right from the beginning. I mentioned a moment ago about the, uh, or maybe, I, yeah, I think I did, when the, yeah, I did, when the people left Egypt. It was a mixed multitude. There were the Hebrew people that came to be known as the Jews later, and there were Gentiles, there were Egyptians there. We see scripture after scripture of God promising to send the Messiah, who would be a light to the nations, the Gentiles. We see it. You just go all through scripture and you can see it's right there from the very beginning. God never intended to take one people group and set them aside and those were his people and no one else was. He wanted all people to come and be part of his family. There's an interesting scripture in the New Testament. When Yeshua walked the earth, he made a statement and said he had come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, In other words, only for the Jewish people. So if we take 2 Chronicles 7.14 and keep it in its strictest application, that is that it applies only to the Jewish people and only in regard to the temple, without looking at the other scriptures where we are told that the Messiah will indeed be sent to his own people, but that not, will not only be sent to his own people, but will also be a light to the nations and will also be their salvation, we are limiting God and his word. In other words, that's a lot I just spoke, long sentence, but... Basically, if, if you're going to be that strict with that, be that strict with Yeshua's statement that he came only for the lost house of Israel. That means we Gentiles don't rate. But that was not the intention at all. Not with Yeshua's statement. That was his assignment at that particular moment. But we see later that he does indeed include the Gentiles. And there are exceptions. Even when he walked the earth, there are times when he ministered to Gentiles and healed them as well. That was not his primary focus at the time, but he did do it. In fact, we see in Acts 1, chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 8, 
Yeshua leaves instructions for his apostles. This was right before his ascension. He told them, but you will receive power when the Ruach HaKadosh has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and through all Judah and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He was commissioning his apostles to continue to reach the people of Jerusalem and through all Judah, which were the Jewish people. So he was reiterating that. But he expanded it at this stage. He said, Samaria. Remember, Samaritans were half Jewish and considered half-breeds. So they were a blend of Jew and Gentile. Then he said, to the end of the earth, all other nations. So here we see, now it's time to really begin to usher them in. They were to reach out to the Gentiles, and once they accepted the salvation offered by Yeshua, they would become, the Gentiles would become his people. For those who hold the position that the phrase in 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people only applies to the Jewish people and not in the context of the temple, and it does not apply in any other way to any people, group, or place, I want to throw another one at you. Let's consider something Peter said. He told a group of first century Gentile believers in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. So they, now we are called by his name. So it's pretty clear. People other than ethnic Jews are the people of God along with the Jews. So when God says, if my people who are called by my name, that means we as believers in Messiah who have been adopted into his family are also considered God's people because of the work of his son, Yeshua. Now, I want you to really understand what I'm saying because I don't want to be misunderstood. I am not in any way implying that the church or any people or nation have in any way replaced Israel or assumed the blessings that were promised to Israel alone. As some people have claimed, we see some in the church that want to usurp all those blessings and say they have replaced Israel. No, that is not true. I do not believe that in any way. What I am saying is that God's universal principle throughout Scripture is that if we will truly repent, which means not only confessing our sins, but also turning from our wicked ways, then he will hear our prayers and he will forgive us and that we are called by his name. We are his people. In this verse, as we just discussed, Solomon was speaking to the people of the promise, the people of the covenant, which were the seed of Abraham. Those were the people who would put their trust in him and call upon him as their God. And additionally, those of us who are Gentiles and who have come to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are grafted in through Abraham. So we are also part of God's people. And I want to talk about that whole concept here for a few minutes because sometimes there's some confusion about us being grafted in to Abraham. Some people want to take the position that we become Jewish, which is not true. We still remain Gentile. And I want to explain something to you. We're grafted into Abraham, but was Abraham a Jew? No. Jewish people, as we know, did not exist at that time. He was Mediterranean. The people that would later become, come to be known as Jewish came through his son's son. Okay? So, his son was Isaac came through Isaac, 
and through Isaac's son, Jacob. And Jacob was the father of the sons that would become the fathers of the 12 tribes that became Israel. So it was Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, who fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. But guess what? Abraham had other children besides Isaac. If Abraham had been Jewish, his children would be Jewish as well, because at that time, paternity was determined by the father. In modern times, they consider paternity through the mother, but back then, it was the father. So I want to look at Abraham's children real quick, and let's see where, where they all netted out. There is Ishmael. He was Abraham's firstborn. Okay? Ishmael was not Jewish. I think we would all agree on that. He's actually considered to be the father of the Arab nations, Gentiles. Then he had other children. After his wife died, he married Keturah. Those children are not considered Jewish. In fact, the Bible tells us that Abraham gave gifts to Ishmael and the children of Keturah. Then he sent them unto the east country. Keturah's descendants include the Midianites, the Kenites, the Rechabites that we read about in the Tanakh. Some of her children went to Persia, which is modern-day Iran. It is believed that others were scattered into Assyria and beyond, which includes such modern-day countries as Iraq, Syria, Turkey, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and even their neighbor, Jordan. Also remember that Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, had a twin brother, Esau. Esau's not Jewish. In fact, Esau became the father of the Edomites, who during the Maccabean wars were subjugated by the Jews and forced to convert to Judaism. So they were only Jewish because they were forced to become Jewish. When Greek became the common language, the Edomites became known as the Edomians, might be a familiar phrase. With the rise of the Roman Empire, an Edomian whose father had converted to Judaism was named King of Judah, or Judea, who is known in history as King Herod the Great, the tyrant who ordered a massacre in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the Messiah when he was a child. The Edomian people slowly disappeared from history after Herod's death and are no longer around today. So, what all this means is that unless we are direct descendants of Jacob, not even Jacob's twin brother, but Jacob, we are Gentile and not of the lineage of Israel. Now, what has changed is that when we accept Messiah, we become part of God's family, and we're grafted in all the way back to Abraham, as I said a moment ago, before the 12 tribes were ever born. So we're as much a part of God's family as the Jewish people are, but we have different roles. And I want to read a verse to you now, a couple of verses, actually. Um, this is Paul. He says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, let him walk in this way. I give this rule in all of Messiah's communities. Was anyone called when he already had been circumcised? Let him not make himself uncircumcised. Has anyone been called while uncircumcised? Let him not allow himself to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping God's commandments matters. 
let each one remain in the calling in which he was called. And I did a teaching back in the spring where we really elaborated on this concept of circumcision. And it, put it in a nutshell, it is the sign of being a Jew. If a person converts to Judaism, that is actually the last step in the process, being circumcised. So what we see Paul saying here is, if you're a Jewish person, you come to Messiah, you are still a Jewish person. You don't become a Gentile because you've accepted Yeshua. If you're a Gentile, you accept Yeshua. You don't become, become Jewish because you've accepted him. You're still a Gentile. We Gentiles, those of us who are Gentiles, myself included, have a special role to provoke the Jews who do not know Messiah to jealousy, to try to lead them to Messiah. And guess what? The Jews have a very special role as well. Their role was to preserve the word of God and to be a light to the nation so that the nations could know the Messiah. So we're both part of the same family, different roles, just as a husband and wife are part of the same family but have different roles in that family. Equal but different. So now that we've established that we are all part of God's family if we've accepted Messiah, we need to remember that when he warns us to do something, he expects us to do something. He expects us to take action. And I want to talk about a couple of examples here. Remember Jonah. Rabbi Scott talked about him just a couple of weeks ago. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach to the people to tell them to repent. Other examples include Noah, who God told to build an ark because judgment was coming. And Joseph, who we just read about this week, who was told to store up food because of a severe famine that God was about to place on the earth. God didn't tell these three people. He didn't give them a warning that something bad was about to happen just so they could sit idly by, twiddle the thumbs, and watch it happen. He told them that as a warning and expected them to get out and do something about it. And we see in all three instances they did. We're going to talk about Jonah in a moment. But Noah, he built that ark that God told him to, and he saved his family. Joseph, what did Joseph do? We read this week what Joseph did. He made sure that all the people's lives were saved during the famine by making sure there was enough food there and taking care of not just the Jewish people, what would become the Jewish people, but also taking care of the Egyptians and the people in the surrounding nations that were being impacted by the famine. Right now, I think we can all see that our nation is headed towards judgment. So guess what? That's God's warning to us. We need to be doing something, and this is our starting point right here, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Ezekiel 18.23 tells us this, and this is God speaking. Do I take any pleasure at all in having the wicked person die? Asks Adonai Elohim. Wouldn't I prefer that he turn from his ways and live? Adonai does not delight in judgment, but in repentance. And when we become his people, he places his Holy Spirit in us, his Ruach HaKodesh, and he gives us his authority. And it is with his authority that we need to take action, we need to pray for our nation, and we need to resist the forces of the enemy. The next part of this verse is, will humble themselves. So what does it mean to humble ourselves? The Webster Dictionary defines it as not being proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive, reflecting, 
expressing or offered in a spirit of deference or submission. In other words, we are not to be prideful, but we are to submit to one another. And in this context, in this verse, we're to submit to our Heavenly Father's will. It means that if we do not focus on ourselves, but we have the proper perspective of what really matters in life and in God's eyes, we are more concerned with ministry than with material things. And yes, guess what? Every single one of us is called to ministry. Now, there's a difference in full-time career ministry. Not everyone is called into that. But everyone, when you accept Messiah, you are called to be a minister because you need to minister to other people in his name. If you see someone suffering, you're to be there to support them, to encourage them. We are all ministers in that respect. That ministry sometimes may take the form of just sitting and listening. Sometimes that's all a person needs is a, is a pleasant, friendly ear just to listen. There's nothing you can do to help the situation, but you can listen. Sometimes that's all that person needs. And that is a form of ministry. And another word for ministry is really service. So humble people desire to help others. They are compassionate. And they make choices based on values rather than impulses or shallow desires. Galatians 5.13 is explicit in this regard. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And Joshua 22.5 tells us, but be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of God, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. 1 Peter 4.10 tells us each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And there are no, numerous other scriptures we could talk about that uh, refer to ministry and service to others. But the bottom line is this. When we are told to humble ourselves, it means that we are to submit ourselves to God's will and to consider others as more important than ourselves. And Philippians 2.3 tells us just that. Then we come to another requirement in this verse. It just keeps going on and on. It's a short verse, but it's amazing how much is in here. We are to seek his face. Pray and seek his face. So let's be honest with ourselves. As much as we might want to believe that we are serious prayer warriors, the reality is that most of us most likely spend much less time in prayer than we should. So let's talk about what it really means to seek him in prayer because this is not just saying, God, forgive our nation, and you walk off. This is seeking God. It says seek his face. When we say a short prayer, are we really seeking him? After all, seeking means to look for or attempt to find. Have you ever lost your keys and you have to go looking and turning up cushions and go all over the house? You're seeking those keys. You're not just saying, oh, the keys are sitting there on the counter. You're actually seeking, so it, it requires some effort. Let's be honest, most of our prayers are short and they're focused on some type of need or want. 
which is not wrong in and of itself, okay? Short prayers are fine. We are told in Scripture to remain in an attitude of prayer at all times, and that means if we see something going on, then we're able to go to God and lift that need up right then and there. And I'll give you an example. If you're driving down the road, okay, on the way to work, on the way to service, wherever, and you see an ambulance go speeding by you, you're not in a position where you can get down on your knees and just really seek God right then and there, but you are in a position where you can lift up a quick prayer for the safety of the people in that ambulance as well as for whoever it is that they are assisting. So quick, quick easy prayers are good. Popcorn prayers, as some people call them. God wants those. He honors those. But those, that should not be the end of our prayer life. There should be more to it than just that. Seeking his face means that we diligently seek him in our prayers rather than just a hit-and-go prayer or an extended prayer because sometimes we may pray for an hour or more, but all we do is recite a, wish, a list of wishes of what we want to happen or what we need. And there's a time and place for that as well. He wants us to come before him with our needs. He wants to know what our desires are. But there's a time when we really need to look for him. The fact is that we are sinful, fallen creatures, which means we're separated from him. So we need to move ourselves out of that sinful nature and into his ways. We need to set aside time in prayer to truly search for his presence and his righteousness. And in order to do this, we need to humble ourselves, just as we talked about a moment ago, by denying our sinful and selfish nature. We need to let go of our pride and esteem that we have in our own thoughts and deeds. We have to admit that we need to be truly changed from the inside out. And we're reminded of this fact in Psalm chapter 66, verses 18 through 20. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But surely God has heard. He has listened to my voice in prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. And by doing this, we pave the way for the next part of this verse and turn from their wicked ways. And while it may sound simplistic on the surface, this one is very important. And it's much harder than it sounds because sadly, much of the body of Messiah has learned to compromise with the world and accept ungodly ways as a fact of life. And many times we just do not see how sullied we have become. A person who is sold out to the Lord and truly living for him doesn't just accept him. That person surrenders to him. Second Chronicles 5, excuse me, Second Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. The old things have, have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It has been said that many people turn to God as fire insurance while clinging to their old, old lifestyles. You ever heard that saying? <laughs> that can be said for congregations as well. Too often, they become so afraid of offending someone that they accept more and more unbiblical behavior until they lose their saltiness. And I want to talk about saltiness here for a moment. This is addressed in Matthew chapter 5. Verses 13 through 16 tell us you, which would be us as believers, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt 
should lose its flavor, how should it be made salty again? Now remember, salt has two purposes. One, it's used to season food. It affects its flavor. It makes it enjoyable, palatable. It's also used as a preservative. So what we learned from this is that we are to affect the people around us in a positive way for God's kingdom, and we are also to preserve his word and his ways. And getting back to the verse. It, salt, is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You, again speaking to us as believers, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand so it gives light to all in the house. I want to read a quote here. Uh, this is from a senior pastor, Alan Snap. I'm not familiar with him, but I ran across a couple of excerpts from one of his sermons that is very appropriate for what we're talking about this morning. In fact, his sermon was titled, If My People Will Turn Away From Their Wicked Ways. And in that sermon, Pastor Snap says this, Faith in Christ and repenting from our sin are two sides of the same coin. There is no genuine repentance without faith and no genuine faith without repentance. There is a costless, changeless form of Christianity, or you could say Messianic Judaism if you want to, that not only says, come as you are, but says, stay as you are. The result is that churches are filled with churchgoers who have little more intention of obeying God than non-churchgoers. At every point that they see sin, they refuse to repent. Pretty strong words. In order to be God's people, we must live like it. And I don't mean simply avoiding those obvious sins such as adultery, as lying, murder. I'm sure most of us have probably known some people that would claim that they're, oh, I'm a strong believer because I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't cuss. Yeah, those obvious sins. But guess what? Those are not the only sins. In fact, we're told pride, distraction, placing paths in our idols, these are all things that keep us from enjoying the close relationship that our Heavenly Father longs to have with us. Now, in that same sermon, Pastor Snap said this, as if he hasn't already raked us over the coals enough. Keeping the Lord's commandments is a product of loving him with all our heart and soul. Jesus Yeshua also linked our love with our obedience. It really comes down to what we love. The things that keep us from loving and obeying the Lord have more of our affections than God. We love God first, or we love something else first. It's that simple. Pastor Snap then quoted Revelation 2, verse 40. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And then he continued. Just a couple more sentences and we'll get off of him. The remedy according to Yeshua, is to repent. Losing our first love, or loving Yeshua, loving something else more than Yeshua, is sin, which means we can, by the grace of God, turn away from the sin that is dampening our love and turn towards God and receive a fresh and burning love, end quote. 
Turning from our wicked ways means more than just surface devotion, such as going to a worship service once a week, or maybe even going to a Bible study. These are good things or things we should do, but if we've truly turned from our wicked ways, we will abandon our own selfish urges. We'll leave behind our sinful ways, and we will truly submit ourselves to God's will for our lives because we'll chase after righteousness. We'll follow his laws, and we will yield ourselves 100% to the calling of his Holy Spirit. The next phrase in this verse is, Then I will hear from heaven. These words are a dividing point in this verse because this is where our actions stop and where God's action begins. And this is not the only place in Scripture where God tells us that he will hear our prayers. We could spend, in fact, most of the morning looking at those verses. But I want to give you just a few quick examples just to show you that God does say he'll hear our prayers. 1 John 5.14 And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The Apostle John wasn't merely trying to pump up the faith of his readers by saying something that sounded good when he made that statement. He had true confidence in God, including a confidence that whatever we pray for in God's will is a prayer that God will hear and answer. And when we repent and pray in accordance with God's will, which includes our turning from wickedness, he hears us. Psalm 66, 19 tells us, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. This psalmist was like John. He knew that God listened to his prayer. And he said he even attended to his prayer. It's one thing to have your prayers heard. But to have them attended to means that they've been taken care of. In other words, he has answered them. Now that doesn't mean that your request will be answered in the exact way you're we want it to be answered because God's will sometimes is so far above what we can even imagine. But if God attends to it and he answers it, that should be enough for us. And let's look at another example from John. This is in John 9:31. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Hmm, that verse sounds a little bit like 2 Chronicles 7:14 when you set them side by side and look at the concepts. So we see if we repent, do his will, he will hear us, and he answers. 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the faith of the Lord is against those who do evil. So not only are our prayers being heard, God's ears are opened toward them. However, his face is against the wicked. If his face is against the wicked, it's not likely that their prayers will be heard, and we even read that in one of those scriptures, especially if that person is living in sin. But guess what? God, there is an exception. God does hear them when they cry out to him and ask to be saved. He does hear the wicked then. In the meantime, it's our responsibility as believers to cry out to God on their behalf until they realize that they need him, asking that his spirit will reveal to them their needs of his salvation, and that's where this verse comes in to intercede on behalf of our nation and those people that do not yet know God. Indeed, we can have confidence that God will hear our prayers. God can even read our thoughts and the intents of our hearts, as the word tells us in Hebrews 4.13. And I'll let you look that one up. So it's not a matter of whether he will hear us or not. 
It's a matter of whether we will accept his answer. Then we come to the phrase, a beautiful phrase, and will forgive their sin. We have looked at the subject of forgiveness in previous classes, so we won't go into detail on this one. But I do want to look at a few quick scriptures for confirmation. And I want you to know this, God is faithful to forgive when we ask him for forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Again, that's what I said, the wicked, when they cry out to him, he even hears them. Ephesians 4.31 and 32, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and quarreling and slander, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God and Messiah also forgave you. How many of you, in, just to get off the track for a second, how many of you in reading this week's Parsha caught when Joseph told his brothers as they were departing to go back and get his father not to quarrel on the way back? Right, here's a verse. We're told don't quarrel. So I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. Joseph knew it was not good to quarrel, and God doesn't want us to quarrel with one another. Isaiah 43:25 tells us, I, I am the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. And we see a universal principle in John 3:16 and 17. I know we can all quote those verses. That God loves us and he wants us to repent rather than to suffer punishment. And I'll read those two quickly. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So it stands to reason that he doesn't want any nation to have to be destroyed because of sin and wickedness. Not for the nation's sake, but because the nation is comprised of individuals. And I want to talk about a couple of examples. As we said earlier, remember, everything should be confirmed with two or more witnesses. So I'm going to give you two witnesses right now. Probably the most famous example of this is the story of Jonah and the Ninevites. And as I said, Rabbi Scott talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so it should be fresh in your mind. But because of the wickedness of the people, Adonai had directed Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, and it's important to note that Nineveh, the Ninevites were major enemies of Israel, wanted to destroy Israel. And God wanted Nineveh, or excuse me, wanted Jonah to pronounce his judgment against the city of Nineveh. Joseph, uh, Nineveh, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah did not want them destroyed. He didn't want them to receive, oh, excuse me, let me backtrack here. Jonah wanted to see them destroyed. He did not want to see them receive God's blessings. He knew God was merciful. He knew that if the people repented, God would bring salvation to the people. He would not bring judgment. He would spare them. He would save them. So what did Jonah do? Jonah got in a ship. He went in the opposite direction of Nineveh in an attempt to avoid God's directive to him. We all know the story. Because of his disobedience, God sent a violent storm. Jonah confessed to the crew that he was the cause of the storm. He said, okay, you want the storm to calm down? Throw me overboard. They didn't want to do it initially. They began to see that they were going to lose their lives. Every person on the ship would be lost. So they finally reluctantly relented. They tossed him overboard. 
They were safe. Jonah sank down, down, down. Giant fish comes, swallows him. He's in the belly of that fish for three days. Then God tells the fish, spit him out on dry ground. At that point, Jonah reluctantly obeyed God. He went to Nineveh, preached a very, very simple message. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Okay, quote, unquote. But guess what? The people heeded God's voice. They confessed their sins. They repented. They fasted. They put on ashes, sackcloth. And it wasn't just them. They even made their animals fast. They wanted to demonstrate to God how sincere they were in their repentance. And God spared them. Now, what's important in this story for our purposes this morning is, first, the Ninevites were Gentiles. Okay? So for those who say 2 Chronicles 7.14, that concept only applies to the temple and to the Jewish people, right here are the Ninevites, enemies of Israel, nonetheless. God spared them. Same thing, they cried out to God. They did exactly what 2 Chronicles 7.14 said to do. They prayed, they repented, and they turned from their evil ways. And therefore, God relented and did not destroy them. Now, unfortunately, when you look further in his little further to modern days, you see that over the years, they turned right back to those sins. And they were ultimately destroyed. But those people at that time were spared and saved because they repented. And what that tells us is human nature is sinful. That we can repent and we need to constantly stay before God repenting. It isn't a one-time thing. It's an ongoing, so it's a process throughout our lives. Jonah, however, was not happy. He did what God told him to do, but he didn't do it with the right heart. And he became angry. And he even complained, we see at the end of the book, he complains to God about a plant that springs up and provides shelter, and then God has it wither and die. And then Jonah complains because the plant has died. A plant. So God reminds him in the closing words of this book, you have pity on the plant for which you did no labor or make it grow that appeared overnight and perished overnight. So shouldn't I have pity on Nineveh, the great city that has in it more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, as well as many animals. So we see here, it wasn't about the nation. It was about the people. It was about the lives. God wanted to spare them. And I told you I'll give you a second story. Another famous one is told in the book of Genesis, where the three men or angels visit with Abraham, one of them being God himself. God reveals to Abraham that he is planning to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham pleads with God to spare their lives. So he stands in the gap. He does basically what we see in 2 Chronicles 7.14. And he eventually gets God to spare the cities if only ten righteous can be found. In other words, he's looking for a remnant who have not sold themselves out to the enemy. And if that remnant is there, he will spare the cities. Okay? Sadly, he found that only Lot and his family were declared righteous. And in fact, only Lot and his two daughters were spared from the destruction because Lot's sons-in-law refused to listen. And his wife, as they were leaving the city, looked back longingly and was turned into a pillar of salt. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't delight in doling out punishment, and he would much prefer for us to repent 
so that he can bless us instead. And that doesn't matter what nation you're of. It's the same universal principle. And guess what? I told you two witnesses or two or more witnesses. I'm going to give you a third one as a bonus this morning. Here's a third example. Now this one does relate to the people that ultimately will become the Jewish people in large part. But remember, there's also a mixed multitude here. This is going back to the people who left Egypt, which were mostly the Hebrews, but there were also some Gentiles with them. Exodus 34, we're told about the sin of the golden calf. Adonai had Moses, Moses carve out two more tablets of stone because he had destroyed the other two because of when he came down the mountain, he saw what was going on with that golden calf. They're dancing around. They're worshiping it. He threw the tablets down, broke them. God told him, get two more. God rewrote those words on those two, two tablets. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God, and beginning in verse 6 of chapter 34, Adonai reveals to Moses his 13 attributes. Then Adonai passed before him and proclaimed, Adonai, Adonai, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, showing mercy to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means leaving the guilty unpunished, but bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what we see here is our God is merciful. He's compassionate, and he desires to forgive us. And while forgiveness is given freely when we ask, once we have been forgiven, we have the obligation to go and sin no more. Those are Yeshua's words. When God forgives us, it's imperative that we turn away from our previous lifestyle we acknowledge our sins, we acknowledge our mistakes and shortcomings, and we surrender to him so that he can make us that new creation we read about a few moments ago. And guess what? This applies on the national level as well as on the individual level. Think about it. When masses of people begin to turn back to God, revival will begin. And when that happens, God can intervene, he can bless us, and he can heal our nation, which... It's the last section of this verse. This is the goal that we're aiming for. But we have to remember there's a price here. In order for our land or any other nation to be healed, we, the people of God, have to take the actions we have just discussed. The fact that God spoke these words to Solomon concerning Israel and the temple does not mean that the United States or any other nation cannot benefit by heeding admonitions and obeying God. As I stated earlier, all scripture is profitable. It's for our teaching, for our learning. And the warnings in the Tanakh were written for our instruction, as Paul told us. This verse is so much more than just a promise to Israel. It is a formula for revival. One author described the result if we truly followed this verse. And it's a beautiful picture of revival, and I want to read this to you quickly. We would recognize that we are his people, called to be his own, desired and bought by him long before we were ever born. We would know that we are given his name, made in his image, and given the mind of Messiah. Humanitarian deeds would flow freely as a byproduct of God's spirit, 
working in us through love and humility, we would realize that we are finite creatures who need a Savior, who are not all-knowing, and who realize that our ways are not best. God would be pronounced the true leader of our lives, and we would journey toward him with all our hearts, denouncing the ways of sin permanently. When that happens wholeheartedly, then we will indeed be in a position for God to heal our land. Okay? So, what should we be praying for when it comes to our nation? I'm going to give you a few suggestions. We can pray for justice. Pray that righteousness and integrity would be promoted in both public and private life. Ask God to empower his people to stand for him and to share the good news of Messiah Yeshua more boldly. Pray that sound doctrine would prevail in the body of Messiah. Pray that attacks from the adversary and temptations from the world would be in vain. Pray for peace for our nation. Pray for the peace of Israel. Pray that our nation will see its need of God and our Savior. So let's step back where we started this morning. Who's correct? Those teachers that hold the position that 2 Chronicles 7.14 was for the people of Israel only in the context of the temple are those who can believe it can be applied to other nations. Actually, in some way, they're both a little bit correct and a little bit wrong. At the micro level, it is very specific to Israel and the temple. Okay? We should not expect to see fire come and for God's glory to fill our sanctuary in the way it did at the dedication of the temple as an indication of God's pleasure with our actions. However, the principles spelled out in this verse are the same as we see throughout Scripture. So following that pattern that is said in this verse on behalf of our nation is certainly appropriate. So with that, I would like to go ahead and close. And let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for bringing us safely to your house of worship where we can set aside this past week and just dedicate this day to you and rest in you. Father, we want to ask for your forgiveness for our personal sins as well as the sins of our nation. We want to ask that you would guide and direct our prayers and help us to understand how imperative it is for us to keep our nation in prayer. And not just our nation, but the nations of the world, especially Israel, that's going through so much right now. I especially want to remember the family that lost this little baby this week over there on that horrible attack, the woman who was shot and injured seriously, who was pregnant, and they had to deliver her baby prematurely at 30 weeks, and her little son died this week, and they've had to bury him. So, Father, we, just, we know that family is hurting desperately right now. We ask that this woman, that you would heal her body, that you would heal her mind and her soul. And, Father, that she would be comforted in her time of mourning. We pray for her husband. We pray for the entire family. We pray for that nation that's going through so much. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for the soon return of Messiah. In Yeshua's name, amen.